Welcome everybody to the Institute for Government. Thank you for coming. Um, I am Daniel Thornton, Programme Director here at the Institute for Government. We're not planning any fire alarms today, so if one goes off it's for real. Uh, please go out the way you came in. Uh, we're here to discuss whether the Government Digital Service has been successful uh, and to hear more about Mike Bracken's uh, very interesting book, uh, which is here and which will be available for sale uh, after this uh, discussion. Uh, we're also joined by Baroness Martha Lane Fox. Martha, please. Uh, I shall take you up on that. Uh, who's a former UK government uh, digital champion uh, and author of the 2010 report, which really kicked off uh, the government digital service. Uh, and we also have Ian Watmore, who is uh, first civil service commissioner, uh, former government chief information officer, head of, head of the efficiency and reform group, and a former permanent secretary of two departments. Uh, so, looking forward to a lively discussion. Um, the plan is for Mike to introduce uh, for five minutes uh, the other panellists to, to speak for a couple of minutes in reaction to what they hear from Mike, uh, and then for us to have a discussion amongst the panel. Uh, and I want to leave good time for points and questions from the audience, which I would urge you to, to make uh, pithy, uh, because I've had a lot of interaction with people already, and they want to they want to make points and ask questions about this, this fascinating issue, and I want to get in as many people as I, as I can. Um, you'll see the ne necessary uh, handles and hashtags are up on the, the slide above us. Uh, so if I see you using your phone, I'm going to assume you're tweeting. Um, we will finish at 1.45 p.m. Mike, over to you. Thanks, Daniel. Um, it's been a while. Hello. Um, this is the book. Uh, to speak about. It's great. It's our book. And so, uh, uh, just Ben and uh, Andrew are here today. I'm partners in Public Digital. Tom can't be here. He's on holiday. Um, and we wrote this book really because the model uh, that we explored and developed in GDS in the UK, starting seven years ago, is I think you can safely say becoming the new normal for governments around the world and also for really many large organizations, governments and otherwise. And so we, work at an, we have an organization now called Public Digital, and we help governments around the world and, and large private sector organizations with that digital change uh, using many of the lessons that we learned in, uh, in GDS. And that's from places like Lima to Lebanon to all around the world. Um, we don't really operate in government in the UK. Um, what we find most of the time is that those organizations are making the same sorts of journey and the same sorts of facing the same sorts of issues that we faced in government uh, Ian and I and Martha's report outlined back in 2010 um, and what we try to do really what we try to do with the book is basically to, to depersonalize it but also to show people how to do it to really show uh, that it can be done uh, that talent is there and actually there are some key tenets that we learned in GDS about central power, where it should be located, about focusing on delivery, that pretty much become sort of the way to do it wherever you are and in whatever organization. So we hope that the book's useful to you, um, and we've got good feedback from around the world on that. Um, the somewhat loaded question that Daniel asked is, has GDS been a success story? I, I'm, uh, I, I've not really been working in the UK uh, for some time now, so I'm going to, I'm afraid, duck that question over here. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to press you on that, Mike. I know you are, but, yeah. <laughs> but I will tell you what we have been doing. We work with about 18 governments around the world, 
large organizations, and um, the model that GDS really developed by circumstance and through Martha's report um, and that followed the central model with central powers over skills and people and technology, a relentless focus on service delivery, um, and that led to a, a huge amounts of change in terms of skills, approach, and also cost saving. Um, that model is becoming the new normal, and we see this everywhere, whether it's in Peru developing a new driving license system in five weeks' time, uh, or in, in Mexico, where uh, despite the deep unpopularity of the government, the digital team there aligned with the Treasury has made huge steps in, in, in changing the economic system of how individuals deal with the state through digital birth certificates. You know, that there are many, many of these elements and stories that we see time and again, and they all depend on that GDS model of central powers with rapid delivery, great skills aligned to, to, real, uh, to, you know, to really pressing policy issues. So I think the model internationally is there. I think that it's not a very hard template. You have to understand context wherever you are, but the central tenets behind that model remain the same. Um, is that five minutes? You're getting there, yeah. Okay. <laughs> if there's any last points you want to make, you, you feel, you feel at liberty, well, but I'll come back to you in a couple we, of minutes. I mean, we recently hosted at Harvard, we have an event at Harvard with Harvard University, we recently hosted nine governments, I think, from around the world, and talked to them at operational level, and it was fascinating to hear the same sorts of stories about um, inertia, about bureaucratic problems, around oligopolies, around big IT provision, and you know the same stories are coming out. And I think that you know, I think my reflection of certainly my time and our time at GDS was we did a great deal. We did that because we had huge support, people here elsewhere, but also because we had huge talent and a, and a very strong mandate. Um, when I look at the things that I'm sort of proud about, I think the work. I think that there's a new generation of public servants here now, and they're not going to go back to those old models. As individuals, they're just not going to go back to that way of working. Well, not the ones I meet, anyway. Um, and uh, this is a very dangerous question, but the next thing I'd ask is, compared to where we were in 2010, where's the latest IT crisis? Because the situation. I walked into was just like Groundhog Day. It was like pick your department, pick your IT crisis. It was just a complete mess, one after the other. And we sort of accepted the sort of IT failure as a, a part of part of um, standard behaviour. Um, and the third thing I think uh, that I look back on success is that in the UK government now, there's like better decision making. There's like just wiser, more technically oriented, more digitally savvy decision making going on. You know, there isn't a HMG app. Thank God, you know, when I got to government, I was like, let's have an app. I was like, your website doesn't work, fix that first. You know, it's like the absolute basics now are made, those decisions are made by people who have a much greater sense of what they're doing and how to do it. I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, look at the NHS, things like that, but I think that there's generally a higher level of digital savvy and skills in the British system um, than there were certainly when GDS started. And I think that, that those three things are constitute a success for the UK. Um, whether they are still there now, whether it's set up right, I have my reservations and thoughts, but I think that they were the things I would reflect on that we did well. And finally, I would say that whether it's in New South Wales or in Lebanon or in some uh, really odd places around the world or in Uruguay, all these places we go to, it's the same stuff. And it's a small number of digitally savvy people who know what they're doing, who are committed public servants. They're usually women. Actually, the best ones always are women. And they are the ones. They are the ones that are changing government. 
Thank you very much. Sounds like you think it was, it is, it has been a success broadly. Uh, it, I think you in a global sense. I think that yeah, that, yeah. that movement generally has. I think yeah. in the UK we'd have to talk about that. Yeah. Thank you, Martha. Yes. Good to hear your reflections. You were present at the creation. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I absolutely echo what Mike says, but I would look at it from the other end of the spectrum because. The reason that I came to this was because of the work I've been doing for the government looking at digital inclusion and all the people who are having an appalling experience of government services. You know, it was an irony that the poorest people, the most vulnerable people, have four or five interactions, sometimes a week, with government, all of which were either hanging on the phone, endless paper-based systems, and so on and so on. And it didn't take rocket scientists to work out that if you could help those people understand the internet, build better government services, Everyone's a winner. Government, us as a country, those individuals, citizens. So I would start from the other end of this question and say, have we as citizens benefited from the, some of the services that have been created? Of course we bloody have. I still get people saying to me, thank you for making my power of attorney so easy, my driver's license, all the rest of it, which is ironic because obviously I have nothing to do with that. It was all a brilliant team of people that made them. So I think it would be very hard to downplay how significant that is. Now. Is it enough? No, of course not. I'm an entrepreneur and this was never going to be enough and we've got to keep the pace up and keep the intent. And I think the things that make me nervous now are two things. Firstly, I feel as though we have a total lack of deep digital ambition in this country. I think we have a very enthusiastic culture minister who is fabulous at building the digital economy, story, saying we're going to have a safe place for business, taking a swipe at social media for children, all those things. And I say that with respect, absolutely, wasn't, uh, wasn't meant to be barbed, but there's an absence of really deep thinking about how we as the UK are going to transform ourselves for the benefit of all of us. Infrastructure, skills, government services, government itself, education, hospitals, schools, local government, and that is extremely alarming to my mind, and I cannot underestimate how, sorry, cannot overestimate to you how important I feel that is for our survival in the next two to five years. So, GDS has done way beyond what I imagined we could do when we started writing that report in 2010, but it is not enough, and the absence of deep political leadership on this now about recreating the UK is profoundly disturbing. Thank you. Ian. Um, <coughs> thank you. Well, uh, the question is about the GDS era. I think the GDS era is the third phase in the whole era of what we now call digital government. I think it started around about 97 when yeah. Alex Allen, who I'm pleased to see is in the audience, was yes. appointed as the envoy. And um, Alex and then the late Andrew Pinder, very sadly died last year, really took on that whole first era and made a difference. They got things like the government service, secure intranet up and running, they established targets for government services to go online, and, and there, was, there was a tremendous sea change, even though on the ground everything, everybody's interaction with government was still very traditional, very paper-oriented, very call centre-oriented. I arrived in 2004, and I, I like to think that's kind of the second era, where I inherited something that had just been started by Andrew Pinder called DirectGov. It had about 20,000 people using it, and the vision was that DirectGov would be the place in which all the information of government would come in one place so people didn't have to, have to navigate all the websites. And I decided that was the thing to back. I had limited funds. Everything, there was a lot of money being spent on stuff that had to be closed down, but that was the one to back. 
And over the next five years, we got it up. There were 25 million people using DirectGov every week by the end of that period. I mean, it was a remarkable growth. And I was very proud of that. However, um, two things that I think were lurking around. One was the big IT disasters were still there. I regard it as a personal failure. I never managed to kill off the National Programme for IT. <laughs> it, it wasn't, it wasn't you did talk the, about it a lot. It wasn't for the one to try. <laughs> I tried everything, including conversations with Prime Ministers, but it just never went, so I uh, couldn't do it. Um, but also, the, we were beginning to look quite old-fashioned with DirectGov. It was very Web 1.0, etc., etc. And it was still largely informational. The only real transactions that were being done that way were the, were the uh, car tax online and similar things. So when Martha's report, with Francis Maud's backing, uh, and, uh, and, and Tom Lucemore and others came out, it was absolute manatee. You know, it was just what I wanted to, to hear, because it was exactly laying the path for what came next. So I said to Martha, who on earth are we going to get to lead this thing? And she said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, I don't either. And we, we asked around, and anyway, obviously there's going to be a public competition. But a certain M. Bracken Esquire's name kept popping up, so we thought we'd better try and persuade him uh, to, uh, to take this job. And he had other irons in the fire. So I remember, I thought, I know, I'll get him into number 10. That usually does it. They get seduced by their power. So we'll, we'll, have, a, we'll have a meeting in number 10. And I thought it was inviting him to my house yeah. and done it. <laughs> and I, I invited him in, and he came in. And we were just chatting away about whatever. And um, suddenly, in walked George Osborne with a bunch of school children. Do you remember yeah, this? Yeah. And um, he'd, taken, he'd got people from his constituency around, kids from his constituency. He was showing them around. And, um, and he immediately stopped what he was doing, and he said to Mike, really want you to come and join if you can. Fantastically important. This is what this government's all about. And you know, little, and it was like I'd, if I'd organized it, I'd have thought I was a genius. Um, then, uh, then you met Francis, who equally gave it. He was, Francis, I think, was the first person who ever gave it ministerial drive on a day-to-day -day basis, like he really cared about it, as opposed to it was part of yeah. his portfolio. Um, and, um, and then Mike arrived. Um, for the interview, and the second thing I wanted to say about Mike is when he was interviewed, the, the answer that actually convinced me he was the right man to do it. I said, why are you the right man to do this job, Mike? And he said, well, basically, he said, I'm old enough to talk to the grown-ups and young enough to talk to the cool kids. And, um, and he said, there aren't many of us around who can do that. And he said, so that's probably me. And I knew that was the winning answer. So uh, anyway, we, we hired him. Um, in my time, what he did was remarkable um, in terms of galvanizing uh, a new momentum for change. He said, give me a building, give me some people, or the freedom to hire some people. So I gave him an old church in uh, Holborn, um, which he turned into the sort of modern GDS building, gave him the freedom to hire the people that he wanted to hire. Francis continued to back him ministerially. Martha continued to put a lot of energy in as a sort of non-exec, really. Um, and, and the momentum was created. And, and then the very last meeting I had in 2012, when I, before I left, was an international meeting with the OECD, where I was representing the British government in a whole about 29 countries, something like that. And almost every single one of them said, we so admire what you're doing with your IT and digital in this country. Um, you know, we're all looking at what you're doing with gov.uk. We all want to emulate it. We all want to copy it. Um, now, I haven't observed it from the inside <coughs> since, except I did happen to have a meeting in the GDS building that is now no longer an ex-church, but is a trendy place in Old Street. Um, 
And it was, it, was, it was still a very fun and exciting place with lots of very, very vibrant, talented people making a difference. So mm-hmm. I think the legacy is still there. The questions I'd pose about whether GDS has been successful are twofold. I think it's now at the beginning of its fourth era. So if I, the first was the Alex Allen Andrew Pinder area, the, the second was the direct government, the third was the GDS. I think it needs a new momentum. Maybe Matt, Matt who's a great minister, uh, can, can get that moving. I, I don't know whether, what that is. And the second thing is we've never really cracked collectively that dichotomy between doing things online and big old-fashioned transaction processing systems on which the world still depends, whether it's airlines, banks, or government departments, things that were built in the 70s and 80s are still whirring away behind the scenes, powering a lot of what we do. And we've never really cracked how to bring those two together and how to do new things without having to uh, reinvent the past all the time. So they would be my two challenges, but overwhelmingly a big success story. Thanks very much. I'd like to come back to a couple of things you've, you've mentioned, Ian. But, um, but Martha, let's, I mean, this, this 2010 report you wrote... Um, not just me, but the not just team you. effort. Yeah. You, you had your, had your, certainly had your name on it. Um, and uh, so, I mean, you, one of the important recommendations you made was, you know, get rid of this old direct gov thing that, that Ian built and, and tidy up all these websites um, uh, and create a single, single place that people can come. And that's happened. Uh, now, not everybody thinks gov.uk is perfect, but it's happened, and it's you know saves money, and it, and it creates a sort of you know well-designed place for citizens to go. But the second recommendation, in fact, I think it was the first recommendation you made, was um, create um, standards for APIs for government. Uh, APIs. I'm sure many people in this room know what uh, APIs are, but sort of uh, standard ways for software to talk to each other. Um, and that hasn't happened, has it? No, I mean, it wasn't the second recommendation, it wasn't the first thing, it was the last one, actually. Was it? No, okay. it was, the first one was start with the user, and the first one was relentlessly for government to shift its focus from writing policies that may or may not be relevant <coughs> to the end user, to actually thinking what the user is trying to do with this stuff, and that was overwhelming the place that we tried to start, because, you know, I didn't know about government, I knew about building transactional, consumer-facing websites, so... And it's not trying to draw a clunky business comparison, but it's easy to underestimate the scale of shift for government to think so meaningfully about the person using the service at the other end. Not through what Ian and the direct gov team had done, but we were trying to do this across all departments yeah. at scale. And yeah, that was I was different. just teasing him. Yeah. So that was, that's the, that was the first one, the most important thing. And the second thing was to think about the world as digital by default. Lots of people took that digital only. That's not what I meant. I always meant digital by default. Like, think about it digitally. And if it can't work digitally, think about what you need to support it, not the other way around. I found phone lines in the course of researching our report that were still being manned, that were receiving about four calls a year. I mean, how depressing to be manning that phone line, <laughs> quite apart from it, but in all seriousness, quite apart from just the incredible inefficiency of all this stuff. And the final recommendation was about creating government as the platform and allowing then the plugins and the stuff to happen. And that is, true to say, kind of work in progress, yes. But I still think there is an acceptance, and I, I don't know because I'm probably not current enough in some of the thinking, that that is the direction of travel. Certainly when Mike was leaving, that was still a direction of travel. It, but, it, but it hasn't really happened, has it? I mean, that, if you look at the, what's been done, what's worked and what hasn't, I mean, that government as a platform hasn't really well, taken off, has it? Uh, not really, not enough. And I mean, if you've got pay and notify, they are unverified, although that's been sabotaged, I believe. But it, 
pay and notify are very good examples of a platform service. I mean, I've not got the numbers to hand, but there are you know, millions of people using them. The, the, you know, the, the whole model of that having common platforms is highly appropriate for government. The fundamental point where, and I, I'm not making comments like GDS now about, about government, is when you transform everything, anything, in a big organisation, I've worked in sort of several sectors where you do this, you get to a point where you go, well, we've transformed a lot of stuff and it's better, but you have to look at yourself and go, we're just not set up right here. Like, this is like, you wouldn't set yourself up this way again. Now, government departments are about a billion years old and you, you just you couldn't help get to the point of going like, why are we set up this way? Like you, you wouldn't start now with a department of this and a department of that for many of the things that government actually wants to do. And the platform, many people who run those departments are smart people, and they fundamentally believe, not all of them, but many of them, that, that the platform model takes away their power. And they believe that because power in Whitehall is often crazily perceived as, you know, how many individual levers of my world can I control on my own? And so I remember, I remember having, I'll tell you who it is later, I remember having a, a conversation with the permanent secretary and I, who was pushing back so hard. And I just, Tongue and Cheek said, well, you know, if you, if you could have your own, ele own electricity, your own department electricity, would, would you have that? Well, think about it. And I'm not, still not sure whether she was, she was being joking or not. I mean, the, 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 the culture of proprietary and the sovereignty of departments is phenomenal. It is quite phenomenal. And it's got many good reasons why it is what it is. But in a digital world where you can actually have massive changes for millions of people very quickly by adopting common standards and protocols, which are hugely efficient for government, the real pushback is the, actually the operational model of, of Whitehall. And until that supply-side reform is tackled, until some politicians go, you know what, we're going to fundamentally change how we're doing it, then I just don't see ideas like platform plays working. I mean, you don't see Amazon say, I know what we'll do, we'll set up some shops just like the old bookshops. You, know, you, you have to question why you're in the operational model that you are. As I said, Ian, probably more wisely than my current job, there are very good reasons why some of those departments exist. But there are also really, really toxic reasons why they resist providing better services for people and for the economy in general. And politicians need to tackle that job. Because frankly, as a civil servant, even if you're trying to reform that, it's just too tiring. You, know, you just need some political mouths to do that. And I, I don't see that going away. Whether it's government platform or anything that requires a reform of Whitehall, it's going to have to get a political grip. I say to every politician of every party I meet when they ask me so what you can do, I said, well, I just, I just, and I'm not particularly political, I say, what, what is it you want to do if you're in power? And they say, I do this or that, this. I said, great, okay, and how's your civil service reform bill looking? And what would you mean? He said, well, you're not going to do any of that until you actually grip this, because that reform of that operational structure is not coming from within. It's just, it's far too, the power system is far too baked in. Anyone over 40, anyone at SCS, whatever it is, two, one, you know, is invested in that system. I was invested in that system. It's not personal criticism. It's just that the system structure, the power structure is too strong, and therefore reforming ideas like government's a platform fall, on, you know, fall foul of that. The point is, I'm not, I wouldn't, that's more of a generic point than government's the platform, but that's the fundamental point, that in a digital world, our, you know, our operational model of Whitehall, I, I, when I left, I just collected quotes, and I had a quote from Tony Blair and Nick Clegg, about half a dozen of them, all saying roughly the same thing, that on their departure from the mainstream politics, they realised that the, the analogue mechanism of Whitehall was just not fit for a digital world, and we've got to grasp that. So you're, I mean, you, you sort of said Verify was um, 
sabotaged. You said you had these confrontations with permanent secretaries. It's, it's kind of come down to a kind of power struggle. I mean, when you look back, were there things that you could have done differently to, to kind of make more progress in the, in the five years you were, you were in? Well, was yeah. it five years or four, four five, years? Or, five, yeah. five years. Yeah. Felt like 50. But the, the, <laughs> the, the, the point is that, I mean, look, I could not have had more support personally. I could not have had more support. Two people on this stage, many people in that system. So that it's not a personal point. Would I, could I have done this? Like every day I went home and thought I should have done something differently. So it's not that. It, it, it's that I think collectively, unless we acknowledge that that's a systemic problem, then no individual is going to say I could have done or should have done changed that more differently. Because it's, it's actually how we're set up. But I mean, if you take a, a really revolutionary change, like in universal credit, I mean, that's a really big change to the way the welfare system is administered. Um, I mean, that's the sort of radical change, perhaps, that you're talking about. I mean, they're creating a, a new digital system that will, uh, you know, provide benefits, uh, merging all these different rules. I mean, it's a massive change process. And I, I mean, I really enjoyed your book, but I, I kind of felt that there was a there was a chapter missing, which was what do you do with all these legacy systems? And and kind of for me, saying get rid of you know get rid of departments as they exist doesn't answer that question. Well, what not, do you actually do with Not necessarily the get the departments, system? but departmental thinking. So let's take transport, right? Ian's right, by the way, that these, these, these underlying systems, it's not just about the technology. It's about the power structure around it. Like there's a bunch of consultants in the home office who had a club and a dinner once a month to celebrate. You can only go if you get so much money out of it as a consultant. None of those people are going to put their hands up to vote for closing down of those systems. So that's what you're up against. Now, unless someone gets to grips with that and just find, finds them and says, right, you lot, out the door, you're never going to sort that out. And the problem isn't just the, the legacy technology, it's the sort of accretion of power systems around those technology systems. When we've occasionally had a crisis, I, I think the best example would be DVLA. Perfect example. Everyone said, when I started, everyone said, you know, whatever you do, don't touch that thing in Swansea because it's head, held together by sellotape. That was actually a, that was actually a huge understatement. Um, it was, I've never seen anything quite as bad as that. And yet, you know, Ian Patterson and the team down there, Oliver Morley, they did precisely that. They took the legacy out. They saved about quarter, 200 million pound a year from taking it out. A small team re-engineered motoring. So even today in the UK, our motoring services are now in a position to offer digital driving licenses and be in a position, as motoring is changing, electronic vehicles come around, to be in a position to meet that demand because they did that. But they did that actually because no one was looking because Swansea's a long way away and they had a very good perm secretary, let them get on with it. But that was, that wasn't, that was um, the exception. And that needs to be grasped right across. The, it doesn't mean you should close a department, but the problem is in a department, departmental thinking, it'd be like, that's my system, that's not your system. If we use this, I win. If we use yours, we lose. That's just an insane way of looking at the world. So Ian, you've been the chief digital officer. Uh, I'm getting the terms wrong, but the chief Whatever. Whatever you were, yeah. yeah. And, then you, and then you became a permanent secretary at Department for Innovation and, yeah. and so on. Um, so, I mean, tell me how that worked. I mean, because you were, you were, you were yeah, digitally, I mean, extremely digi digitally literate and you were a permanent secretary, so you had these levers. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, mean, it's... Um, I tried to set up a department based on shared services with others so that we broke out of that loop. Um, and... It was really tough because, first of all, we didn't have the investment allocated to us. It was a strange 
treasury chop the world up into different things and they give you an amount of money and they assume you can just make it all happen for free and there was no investment to build a new department. Um, but what, what we found was that we would only be able to use other departments' infrastructure and it, when push came to shove, we became the soup kitchen handout department, yeah. not the primary user. And so I concluded that at the end of the day, you couldn't operate as department A sharing department B's infrastructure because you'd never get a priority service. Um, you could only do it if the service was set up for, e for everybody to be equal participants in it. And, um, and that, I think, is where the model needs to go if we're going, if we're going to break out of that. Um, the second thing is Whitehall departments are, broadly speaking, this is a very, very big simplification, but broadly speaking, in two camps. They are predominantly policy-oriented departments where they have most of their delivery done through third parties, local government, arms length bodies, whatever you care to name it, or they're the big beasts who, who kind of do their own thing, who do everything themselves. It's like, isn't it five departments account for 80% of all civil servants? I think, something like that. Anyway, and, and the DWPs and the revenues and the mods and the home offices as well, you know, they are big organisations and they regard themselves as entire entities that should run their own thing. And so you're either, when you're sitting in the centre in a cabinet office or a GDS type world, you're either dealing with these big beasts who do their own thing, or through a department who's actually got a very um, arm's length sort of structure out there. And, and trying to affect change through that is really complicated, as Mike says. But I wouldn't, I still go back, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be, this glass is not full, but it kind of represents where we are to me. It's, uh, you know, in 1997, when there was basically nothing, if people had said we were having a meeting literally 20 years later and all the achievements that have been achieved have been achieved and chalked off and we'd be largely regarded as probably the best in the world even today, you know, nobody would have believed you. So I think we have to be very, very proud of what we have done but if we sit back and just rest on our laurels, we'll just slowly decay, which is why we need the challenges of this sort of forum. What's the next thing we need to go after? How are we going to make it? Just because yeah. I agree with you, but I think there is a danger to saying, look where we've come in 20 years, because look where we are now, not just in technology and digital government, but as a country, yeah. with a massive kind of sabotaging of services at the macro level, a hugely different way of budgeting and the complexity of the political landscape. And to my mind, the only answer is better use of digital in order to enable people to have the things that they deserve in their lives. And that's, I think, the danger now, which maybe is GDS part four. It's not just about continuing government technology. It's about how do we as a society make sure that people have access to the same brilliant services because mental health is not going to be able to be provided at scale for people unless we use technology better. Social care is not going to be able to be provided at scale unless we use better technology. I'm not talking about everything being online, not at all, but smart use of this stuff. And I think that's the debate that is so wildly absent and, and that's and, what alarms me. And that, I think, I, I couldn't agree more. That's exactly where, where we are now. We've kind of laid the foundations to go to yeah. that point. Yeah. If we just rest now, we'll just, it will start to look. And, and the only thing that we haven't talked about, which is interesting, I think, because I think it's possibly the most significant thing that's happened in the last five years, is that the digital world has reached core politics, not public services. 
We haven't yeah. mentioned that. I mean, for the first 15 years, it was all about public services. Yeah. It's become more about politics, you know, the whole way in which politics operates now. And I don't want to get into a political debate because I'm mm. an independent person and all that, and, um, uh, uh, and you have to be very careful what you say. But that's the other aspect of the digital world that's, that's happened, is, is the political side. You're right, but there's and such a danger to that too. Because exactly. to my mind at the minute, having, like you guys, seen the last 25 years of that, no politician is going to lose voters by sideswiping tech right now. And I'm not just talking about big tech. It's just like, blame the internet for loads of stuff that might seem wrong. And that feels an uncomfortable place to be as well. And mm. that's why I think we need to bring those, those two energies there. The politicians now yep. get the internet, not in terms of delivering mm. public services, in terms of getting elected and making messages yep. happen. There's a whole world out there that you've outlined. We have the, the basics there to do both. That's where I think the next wave needs to go, personally. Thank you. Right, I'd like to open up to the audience, and you have very successfully put up your hand first. Well done. Um, please wait for the mic, uh, and please say who you are, and please, as I said, be brief, and then I'm going to go to Adrian, who almost pipped you. Go ahead. Uh, hello, Simone Finn. I was a special advisor in the Cabinet Office um, when GDS was set up. Um, I'm, I'm, well, I'm going to push on. I, I think GDS was an amazing success. It has been an amazing success. We went to, you know, when you go to the US, USDS has copied it, um, Australia's copied it. The model is, is brilliant and simple and it's right. The reason, but I, I share the concern about how it's working in the UK government, especially your government's platform and the common standards. And the point is that it needed to be mandated that um, all the departments needed to adopt the common standards, otherwise it's not going to work. And the problem is, is that the, the Whitehall tussles are always about, oh no, I can do it better in my department in HMRC, or I can do it better in DWP, or, or wherever. It goes to the point about services. And I just, I think we are really depriving our citizens of what Martha said. It's, it's not about the power struggles, it's not about the policy, it's about the user. And it's... And, and, I, and I think that this is, is a really, what we're doing our citizens down, and I'd like to know what the panel think about that. Thank you very much. Um, pass it to Adrian, and then I'll come to the front here for these two, once we've taken these two. Yep. Thank you. Adrian Brown from the Centre for Public Impact. Um, the, I remember a speech, Mike, that you made in this very room a couple of years ago, where you sounded a lot more revolutionary <laughs> than, than you do today. And I want to try and coax you to repeat some of the stuff you said then. You basically said, if I was to paraphrase it, that Whitehall is fundamentally broken. The internet has disrupted every single other industry that it's uh, interacted with. And if I remember correctly, you said that the Whitehall machine with generalist policymakers, etc., was just absolutely fundamentally broken. We needed a revolution. Do you still agree with yourself. Thank you. <laughs> I do. I do. I give that. <laughs> well, do you want to start on that no, question no, no, then? <laughs> Go on then, Mike. Uh, yeah, really. Uh, so you were just being polite just now. Well, I, you know, I didn't say government's broken. I just think that the Whitehall model, the model that Simon talks about, the I win, you lose model, the, you know, it's, it, it, I spent a lot of time in different countries uh, it frustrated me enormously when I was here. It now just looks like a parochial park again, a parlor game, and uh, park again. That would be good. Um, you know, it's it just looks like a waste of time. I don't know. I'm not in it anymore. I've not been here for two and a half years. So I don't know how prevalent it is, but I, I suspect it's still as strong as it ever was, and it's just not getting us anywhere. 
and I'm, I'm really talking not about individuals, I'm talking about the, a sort of a leadership culture which, which puts sovereignty ahead of service delivery and users. Until that changes, then it's always going to be a tough struggle. But I think, I think you were asking for a recommendation, weren't you? What does the panel, what does the panel think to solve this well, problem, it, right? I mean, well, we can start with mandations from the centre and the yeah. point is yeah. that why, why is this not happening in Whitehall when it's the obvious way to go with government mm. as a platform? And I think that there need to be some serious questions asked of the people who are opposing this um, in, in the needs of the user delivery and moving forward to the next stage because we're not going to without it. So a stronger centre is, that, is, is the answer, is that... What do you well, think? it's not just a stronger centre, and Simone did amazing work. She's underplaying her role in all this too, mm. but it's about having the dual levers, I think, so that sure. you have the controls, but you also have the flexibility, because you know there's no point building the same kind of hugely complex legacy system from the centre that's going to be defunct. It's got to be yeah. more distributed, but it's got to be controlled, and it's got to be standardised. So I completely agree with that. But I think that, the, uh, you know... The, the thing that we haven't explicitly talked about is just the capacity and skills of the people in the system as yeah. well. And you know, there are some amazing people who work in the civil service. Lots of people not choose to do that job. It's hard. You're working in big, complex systems. The risks can feel high. They're always pretty smart people, all that stuff. But it seems to me that there's still a mismatch between some of the incentive structures and how you get rewarded for things, yeah. the risk appetite, the controls, what feels like a downside if you screw up something and all the things that might happen out of that. And I think that the, one of the answers to Simone's question about standards, but the other answer is just about more ability for creativity, entrepreneurialism and imagination in the system. Because yeah. there are lots of people that know the answers, I'm sure. Right. They're just not given the ability to, and the empowerment to be that's able to go forth and do that. If I could answer that, that's entirely right. So it, she's on these stages and, and Ian said some nice things and people said, oh, Mike Brackett did all that. I did absolutely nothing of that. But what I actually did is the same thing you did and the same thing Martha did, which is I actually, in the way that you paraded power and support and autonomy, I did that for a bunch of people who you'd never heard of. Like, that, like there was no, for instance, Ben Terrett's here, somewhere, there's no, there was no service design culture. Like, no one knew what service design was. Like, today, that's an international movement, service design. There are conferences around the world. And we found the best people that would never be employed by government and actually gave them power and autonomy and then linked them up with different departments. That sort of thing was vital. So I'm sitting here talking about the sort of problems of Whitehall. Pretty much 90% of my time from 13 onwards, sort of when, when Ian went, you know, we, we took on the, I took on the sort of technology role then, was actually just doing hiring and getting skills into places in departments. And so I wouldn't want to sort of sit, think this is like in the centre saying all oh, the departments rubbish. We work so hard to get those skills and to link them up. And Martha's absolutely right. The future is actually relatively small, empowered teams within either departments or agencies, or actually having a central focus on solving a policy problem. Give them the tools to do the job and let them get on with it. Some of them are in this room now looking at me. Just let them get on with it because they know 10 times better, because they're committed public servants, and they know 10 times better the problems of the users because they usually are the users. And that's very hard for a power system to do, to actually devolve power and say, actually, we're going to give these people who wear funny clothes and you know, don't look like us and don't come through an SES channel, we're going to give them the autonomy to solve what we think is a gnarly public policy problem, which is actually just need, sometimes just needs a better website. If I could just put yeah, someone to point out, I mean, the, um, I totally agree that you need a very strong centre and you need strong direction. And I also uh, believe that you've got big forces that you have to harness. At the moment, it's somewhere between Brexit, 
global whatever and money austerity, you know, but use them to make change happen. And they will change over time. But the vast majority of services, public services that the citizens of this country consume are not provided by Whitehall. You know, it's really quite a small percentage of them come through DWPs. You know. The vast, you know, the health service, you know, the education system, etc., etc., is very diffuse. Um, local government provides a million of them. And I think, I think Jeremy Hunt was talking about the other day about, you know, with the new spending regime in the NHS that's come out, they need to change the model as well and go yeah. towards a digital NHS. I think he used that phrase. Yeah. Anyway, it, regardless of the politics of that, it seems to me that that's what we're trying to... So if the central power is that sort of push, great, but then the actual enablement of that will come up from the ground and it will be small groups of people doing specific things that make that service digital in that part of the country for that part of the country. That, that's why you need platform plays that are so easy to consume that a parish council or a, a local NHS trust or whatever it is can then just consume it without having to seek a political permission all the way through yeah. the system. Yeah. At the front here, Matthew. <coughs> the mic's just behind you. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Trimming, thanks very much. Um, so I was the external advisor during the spending review in 2015 when um, GDS put its budget into that process, um, as did, the, as did uh, the Department for Health, actually, asking for an obscene amount of money for digital largely because they were the Department for Health, as far as I could see. But the question is picking up on organisation versus incentives and harnessing big themes, Brexit and resources. We're just about to go into another spending review. I've always been a fan more of better alignment of incentives rather than just let's rearrange the deck chairs uh, and see if that organisation <coughs> helps. Um, if Liz Truss or Philip Hammond was in the audience and you wanted to give them one recommendation for more effective use of platforms or better focus on the user uh, and what incentive they could drive across departments through the spending review, what would that recommendation be? Thank you. And at the front here? Um, Andrew Lickham and London Business School. Um, in a sense, it's a variant of the question we've just had which is also about the question, so what should be done now? I'm working on the impact of artificial intelligence on organizations and, um, and the way they're run. And I mean, it seems to me that in answer to Ian, what was question, what is the fourth phase? This is the fourth phase. So the application of artificial intelligence does seem to be the next logical step. It also achieves what Martha Lane Fox wants to achieve, which is to make sure resources can then be used for other things. So my question is, what would be necessary to make sure that artificial intelligence is applied earlier rather than later? Because it will come in due course. The only question is, how quickly will it come? And the quicker it comes, the quicker resources can be freed up, is my assumption. Thank you. OK, the Treasury, recommendations of the Treasury, and how do we get ready for AI in government? I have 50 people under the age of 30 who know what an API is. It's the single most toxic culture that we have to deal with. I, I have no idea how you can manage to recruit all your young intake and not one of them use Facebook. I have absolutely no idea how you have a culture like that. It is astonishing. And, you know, despite all the achievements of GDS, that issue, that was when I left. Because you just get to a point where you've had it and 
when a, an extremely senior person in the Treasury deigns to visit and come over and looks, sniffs around and says, what are you lot for? And you sort of go like, well, we'll just save you four billion pounds, maybe that's the job you should be doing. I mean, it, it's like that culture of all the cultures in Whitehall needs changing quick. And it will be changed by, literally, it will be changed, as they would call it, it will be changed by kids in jeans or kids in shorts. Because it, it's literally a dialogue of the deaf. You're talking to people who are, in many cases, incredibly highly educated, much more than, more than me, very wise to the ways of Whitehall and almost seemingly living deliberately in an analogue age. It's just astonishing. So apart from that, not much. First Civil Service Commissioner, can you sort out the uh, Treasury's... Uh... I'm, I'm a great admirer of the Treasury. Some <laughs> of my finest friends were there. Um, the, um, uh, when you take over a sort of failing company, people have got into the mindset of a, of a cost lockdown and everything is rigid and nothing moves and you have to break out of that mm. and the only way you can break out of that when there's no new money because you can't magic up revenue overnight is to cut deep into some places to free up money to invest in the others and then you have to make very smart choices about where you put that investment government's no no different They're, you know we the argument that we just want more tax i mean the politics of the day will determine how much tax take there is and how much borrowing people are prepared to go through. Once that financial envelope has been set and you've fought the zero-sum game amongst all your colleagues about I want more than him or her and vice versa, when you've got your number, you've got to cut inside that number and to create room to invest and then invest in the things that, yeah. we're, that we're talking about. So if I was the Treasury and Spending Team, what I would be looking to do, apart from getting people's total numbers agreed, I'd be looking for them to come forward with ideas about where within that number they can make savings so that I can in turn release that money and then I would prescribe the two or three types of investment, not the actual investment, the types of investment by the Treasury that is um, that they could, an AI may, be well, may sure. well be one of those, I don't know, I, I wouldn't like to, uh, that, I, right. I, be, I become geriatric tomorrow, I'm now one of the people, when I first came into government and people used to say, and of course there are all these people over 60 that can't use the internet and it's my 60th birthday tomorrow so I'm feeling, so I'm feeling, I'm feeling really, really, but this is, but this is, this is where I, I am not currently in the loop of knowing where to place those financial bets. I think that's for others to decide. Yeah. But I am saying it only will work in government if the Treasury can allow people to, to reduce in one place to invest in another. Yeah. That's I my... Add to that, sorry, and to cut across yeah. you. It's not about age. You know, yeah. It is absolutely unacceptable if Philip Hammond and Liz Ross need to have recommendations about why we're living in 2018, not 1818. But this is not acceptable. I think that this is so profoundly important. You know, I'm, we, we might all be zealots about this stuff, but it is extraordinary to me that we have to even ask that question. My question to them would be, why are you not saying to every department, what's your digital by default plan? You've got to get there within two years, because otherwise, game over, because we're not going to be providing the services our citizens want. Look already what's already has happened to this country. Look at how people in massive numbers are struggling with all kinds of areas of their lives, because we've wiped away services, because we're not managing to spend money as we should do. That's not a political point. It's, I'm, not, you know, I'm a cross-bench peer. I have no, no politics in this. It's just about the 
absolute absence of vision about the modern world. Yeah. And to my mind, that is what they should be demanding. It's sure. not about age. It's often said, oh, we don't have enough young people in your department. Maybe, but it's absolutely no excuse of any age not to realise, if you're leading a major government department, why this isn't the most important thing that you're facing in terms yeah. of how you're thinking about your resources. There is quietly going on Sorry. around the way. Sorry, <laughs> I dream after this. I mean, I look at Yolanda in Mexico, just sitting in Los Pinos, which is... Um, the president's office with the digital team with the head economist literally on the desk next to her. And you said got, she has a red phone that she, she has call a red the prime phone. Minister. And when people don't no, know what she wants to I'll call the prime minister. Yeah, but, this is, but that's so important, right? Jose in Uruguay um, has direct access, you know, the, yeah, the, the, the Mike Pratt in uh, Sydney. There are Macron now in France. Yes. The, there are treasuries around the world that are rapidly gripping this idea and putting these skills, regardless of age, right in the centre of them. And we're not. Mm. It's as simple as that. And the UK is the laggard in this. That, I think that's a cultural point, not a and personal point. And that is the point. danger now for GPS. Okay, I've got two questions here. Perhaps you want to defend the Treasury. Okay. Oh, sorry, your AI question. You didn't. Well, I thought, I, I thought Ian rather neatly answered the question. Um, you know, cut, cut deep and make money for things like AI, but he wasn't saying it was AI. I mean, what, I'm just thinking about what that's going What action? Sort out your training data. Yeah. So AI is not going to go anywhere until you sort out your training data. If you, if you choose to, if, if AI is one of the things that you have to invest in, then clearly um, the, the department's concerned they need expertise in it because they won't have it. So they need to go and get their equivalent of Mike seven or eight years ago, whenever it yeah. was, to kind of start to lead on that and, yeah. and create momentum. But you've got to decide as a government that's something you want to invest in and then put that's funds right. behind it. Okay, these two. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Larry Kemener uh, from Australia and both with the Boston Consulting Group and also with the Centre of Public Impact. Um, Mike, I mean, you talked about the fact that you're advising um, governments around the world about putting in sort of GDS equivalents has become the new normal. Um, in Australia, federally, as opposed to New South Wales, uh, DTO, which was, which was set up about four or five years ago, I'm not quite sure, uh, probably mixed success. It's had it just had its fourth um, CEOs. There's been a high degree of turnover of of heads who haven't you know for whatever reasons. Uh, I think the original one came from from GDS. Um, my question is, what do you see as the prerequisites for a GDS type entity to be successful? You talked about some of the important authorising environment <laughs> issues that that happened, but what what do you see? Not having read your book, what what, what is critical and my sense is Australia possibly hasn't got it at the moment. Let's uh, get the question from David as well. Yeah, David Bicknell from Government Computing, following on from that really. Uh, Mike, from what you've seen around other governments around the world, what are the implications from a leadership point of view about you know, d driving this through governments? You obviously were very active. There is a, a suggestion that maybe GDS is more passive these days. So what are the lessons that you have seen from a leadership point of view of actually driving this through governments around the world? Mike? Proximity to political power, whether it be in a cabinet system or a presidential system. So Argentina is probably the best example. It's a single most impressive country in terms of rapidly rolling out platforms because they've got pressing problems and access to the centre and strong support. Um, the other characteristics are, you know, a, a very large supporting team of political power and civil service power along a common direction. And, and we had a we have that in, in spades. Um, 
I think that there needs to be a, a fundamental call to arms that's different in terms of recruiting skills. There needs to be a very clear messaging to people so they come into government and do make some change. I see that all around the world. We, we have a we have a little thing that we do, which is a hundred percent success rate. Whenever we go to a country, they say, "Oh, this is great," but you can't hire those people around here. And we go, "What people?" And they say, "Whatever, you know, Python people who go meet up, put the name of the city in, put Python." Into it. Oh, there's 400 people meeting in the road next week. You know, there is a community. There are communities everywhere. Well, it's, it's important that all governments open themselves up to those communities. That's one of the single that's biggest, hardest things. Very. I think that's what GDS in the early days did very well because yeah. a lot of people have been knocking around the civic tech area, like myself, for a long time. So we sort of knew all those people that wanted to come in. Um, so there's some of the characteristics. The other characteristics is, is, is the alignment with Treasury. You know, it's probably the biggest single problem we had in, in the UK, and having that alignment with Treasury, because actually the investment money in this relative to government financing is small, but the impact societally is massive. And actually having someone who understands that in the Treasury system is, or the finance department is important. But you, so did, get, you did get some spending controls, which is, yes. is not, I mean, that's pretty, that's a pretty big change from the Treasury's point of view. They don't hand those out very easily. I used to work at the Treasury, I should say. They, they did, they, they did hand them out easily. They actually, the, so there's two things, right? So the controls we had were not hard won. So the controls we had, which many people thought were a lot stronger than we were, I mean, domain power. That, that domain was the key thing, was it? Well, domain power, I remember the meeting we went to, that cabinet committee, and the person who said it went, oh, domain power, said, do you want that? I was like, yeah, yeah, I think, I think that'd be a good idea. And went, um, oh, good, I'm glad you want that. No one else wants that. I was like, great, that's smashing. So all of a sudden, we control all the websites for government. I mean, like, literally, nobody wanted it. It wasn't hard won. It was like, would you please take it off our hands? So the, the, powers, the powers that we had were almost all because of the context in which you were working. And also, the government of the day had an efficiency agenda, so there was a, yeah. a big thing on, on, on savings. Um, I mean, I mean, that is true, that story. But there were other things that there were, like, there were civil servants. Um, the lady you went to New Zealand from HMRC. Do you remember? Don't know. When, when I arrived, the, oh, Melanie, who now is at DCLG. Yeah, Melanie Dawes. And, uh, sorry, I've named recognition's gone, but a lady who was very senior at HMRC worked incredibly hard to free up some of the controls about how we remove business link in. So my point is that at some level the controls are lying on the floor that, that you know you, you can pick them up and no one wants them. On some levels you have to like scalpel them out and it's really hard work and a lot of people get no credit for that. So the controls model is both a, a hard and soft controls and, and I think that we've never really told that story of because when we, when we go to governments around the world at the moment, they usually get the controls that they can, not that they actually need. Mm. And that's, it's a big issue for, for digital plays that they actually can design their own controls. Very quickly on David's point about leadership, is there a specific kind of leadership point you'd make? I think there's a chapter on that in the book, isn't there? Yeah, I'd, I'd read the book, it's, yeah, uh, it's very good on that. But, um, <laughs> I'd, uh, you didn't write that chapter. <laughs> I, I, I certainly have read it. Um, the, um, the communication, like open communication, the governments around the world, UK, no different. People assume that the, the, the leadership deficit, particularly digitally, is because there's a bunch of assumptions that you can't do something. So like, I remember when we published the first blog post, and there were loads of communication people, you can't possibly do that. So we pushed it out on a Friday afternoon, I think, and of course, absolutely nobody noticed. And then Monday morning, we're like, oh, the world hasn't fallen in. By the way, we can write blog posts. You know, it's like, there were, there were those sorts of things going on, and 
the assumption that you can be open and talk openly about what you're doing, however sort of small scale or however detailed or however technically oriented it is, that's the big leadership challenge. Not to fall in line with like what's done around here, which is to be closed and follow a system, but to be open because it, you know, good things happen when you're, when you're open. Great, thank you. So I've just got time for one last round of questions and I've got this person here and the, and the person at the back row with the beard. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name's Jonathan, I'm a digital fast streamer and my career in government's been quite short but up until this point one of the things that's really struck me is that a lot of resistance to change and that's either been digital or you know non-digital has always been driven by an aversion to risk and it seems to be that digital seems to be twice as risky than anything else most of the time to people when you talk about it. And I was just wondering, like, how do we make digital not only default, but sort of the most risk-free solution to people? And, you know, is it a cultural change? I think you kind of alluded it a little bit when you mentioned there about communication. But, like, what are your thoughts for how do we make it, you know, the safest option that people want to go digital? Thank you. And we'll come to the second. Hi, Chantal, this is the Food Standards Agency. I really like your point about transparency, but I want to ask you about data. Um, data is the blood that makes the system flow. What did you learn in GDS? What have you learned since? And what do we need to think about for the future? Great, thank you very much. So we're up against the clock, so I'll ask you to kind of try and answer those questions and say your final remark on kind of what, what we should do next uh, to, to tackle these um, issues. I'm going to leave the data questions because I wasn't so involved in the daily data questions at GDS, but to your point about how do you make digital, um, the more of the new normal, I think it's about two things. I think it's about doing brilliant services and really making sure you're open about them and how you've designed them and it's about working in the open and making it feel less high risk. This is not every time you embark on a new one, it's not an NHS IT project, can actually be something pretty low cost, quite fast and do a massive service to citizens. So you just have to do more of the same, keep at it at pace and keep doing it well. And the second thing is it's absolutely fundamental that there is a higher level of digital understanding across government and in the civil service and in the associated services beyond. And it's something I talk about a lot, so it's so important that we raise the bar. And that's not just about have you got basic digital skills, it's about what are your, what's your ability to ask questions about this, to overcome <coughs> your fear of it, to make you feel like you're a bit further up the curve so that this doesn't feel high risk, it feels absolutely standard. And if you're not doing it, it feels like the risk, not if you are doing it. So that's what I don't see happening in those wider scale education programs and ways that we're going to have to build this into the civil service forever because it's not going to be one tick, it's done. This is the new normal and we have to get used to that. Thank you. Ian? Um, to unite those last three questions, I think you need leaders who are prepared uh, to ask for forgiveness and not for permission. <laughs> um, so people who are prepared to have a go. I think you need leaders who are prepared to be open and transparent about what they intend to do and whilst they are doing it. And then they need to be outstanding at doing what they do. Because if they do the first two and then screw it up, uh, they, they won't be leaders for very much longer and the people that come in after that will be the, the, the wrong sort. But if they do make the success happen, then you get the virtuous circle happening. People want to be like them and follow <coughs> them and do the same way, and that will be the route to the top. So th that would be my, because you don't have success, you don't break through the risk barrier, but if you never try, you never get there either. So you've got to try, be open, don't do it secretively, and then be good at it. And then you break through the barriers, I think. Thank you. Mike? Yeah, socialized risk. You know, the one throat to choke model is a big problem. So get everybody involved, do it in small stages, and learn as you go along, do it in the open. 
data, I was tired and uh, in my last year when I gave me the data job and what I learned was the data problem is actually a microcosm of the Whitehall problem. Uh, the data quality is shocking and there is a very real need to start again. I think in many areas we're whistling in the dark when we think about AI. Um, when we can't, you know, when we've got 14 definitions of the word Scotland across our, um, cent our, our various databases in our central systems, I'm not joking. You know, the, the, the quality of data. People, people that working might actually on. Actually, be quite accurate. Yeah, yeah. The people working on registers pull down the that group of people are doing God's own work in government. I don't know, if, I don't know how that's going on, but sorting out those canonical registers of data is the single biggest reform. Again, it's one of these things like, you're gonna win, I doubt you'll win any votes for it, but you, it is utterly essential that those canonical re registers are not just maintained, but used and mandated. Uh, and you know, I wish I could have done more for that. Data, good, good way to end. Um, so thank you very much, very interesting discussion. Um, we, there will be a, a stream of this uh, uh, available for, if you want to catch up on any of it. Um, let's continue the debate by Twitter if you uh, didn't get a chance to ask your question. Because I didn't write it, buy the book. Uh, there you go, uh, which will be on sale outside. Please join me uh, in thanking uh, Ian, Martha and Mike. <laughs>